0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me to First Peter chapter 1 and we're going to be in verse 17. Together, First Peter is right after James and Hebrews. Uh, if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, uh, we have lots of Bibles for free. So if you don't have one, we want to give you one. We don't want anything from you. We just want you to have a Bible. So see someone with a Here to Help badge after the service um, and they'll hook you up. Also, uh, if you don't have anything to follow along right now, we will have the verses on the screen so we can all study God's Word together. We're going to continue tonight in our series. that's called Curious, and this whole sermon series has been based upon your questions. So questions that you have submitted that either something that you have wondered about and or questions you've encountered as you've been living uh, and speaking the gospel in your sphere of influence. And so, uh, as I've said, we've had a couple uh, great questions thus far, Um, and the ones that came in that we're going to tackle tonight, they were about specific sets of verses uh, that are hard to understand or may even seem contradictory. Uh, and it's, it's really fairly common to hear the Bible criticized or for folks to claim uh, that it contains contradictions or errors. So we're going to address some of those specific questions today about specific sets of verses, uh, but it'll be really good for us to establish a wise, uh, humble, and faithful approach to tough Bible questions in general uh, before we wade into these specifics, okay? So we're going to read First Peter one seventeen through twenty five. Those verses are going to help us along tonight, kind of be our guide rails, and uh, then we'll move forward see what the Lord has for us, okay? First Peter, chapter one, verse seventeen. Here we go. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God since You have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Praise God for his word. Amen. So these verses, um, they're going to help us to approach the scriptures with a humble and a proper posture. First of all, what we see here, it is the living and enduring word of God made alive to us through the imperishable sacrifice of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, which enters our hearts like a seed and takes root, and then it blooms into a beautiful faith by which we were born again into eternal life. Uh, We will not approach hard or difficult Bible questions with wisdom and humility if we do not approach the Scriptures as a whole in this way. Uh, The Bible is the only miraculous and self-authenticating book you will ever encounter. It stands alone, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, as the only words breathed out by God. It is the only book with so many specific and fulfilled prophecies that to doubt it defies logic. The Bible is 66 books written by 40 authors over the span of roughly 1,500 years in several different languages, and it tells our story. The story of God creating us for relationship with him. Mankind deciding to rebel instead, and God's long and loving commitment to restoring and reconciling us back into that relationship for which we were created. Now, we need to make an important distinction here before we dive any further. The ways that we can encounter difficult questions surrounding the Bible can vary, and so we need to approach them accordingly. The first way is through our own reading and studying of the Scriptures. One of the questions that we're going to discuss uh, tonight came to me from someone in that position. And uh, I'm hoping that you are having lots of questions come up from your own study of the Scriptures. The other way that these questions come is from others who are either genuinely curious and seeking truth, or sometimes uh, they're just seeking to discredit and tear down The faith and obedience that the Bible teaches is the right response of every human being towards God. The scriptures here in 1 Peter can help us in either scenario. Uh, For those of us who have encountered the unmatched beauty of grace through faith in Christ alone, we can agree with verse 24. What does it say? All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word... Of the Lord endures forever. When we find apparent contradictions or things that are just hard to understand, those of us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we can humbly and wholeheartedly agree with God's declaration in Isaiah 55. Here's what God says through the prophet For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, So are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And to that I say, amen. I believe that. When we are faced with questions from those who may not have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if they have not experienced the love and mercy of God poured out in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have to make sure our motivations are right before we ever open our mouths to answer. So, What I'm saying is, when we, those who have seen how good and glorious and beautiful the Lord Jesus is, when we encounter difficulties, we're able to approach it a different way than somebody who has not had that experience with the Lord. We need to be cognizant and compassionate about that. Uh, And and when we find ourselves in a situation to answer somebody that is either just struggling with doubts or even has an animosity or hostility towards the Scriptures, we need to check our motives before we ever seek to give them an answer. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but especially when I was a younger man, I would, I would get defensive and even angry sometimes when unbelievers would question the truthfulness of God or his word or his character. Uh, I, I would jump to getting defensive. I think sometimes, at least some of us, are tempted to uh, have a similar response when this happens uh, as it would be to somebody talking about your mama, right? Right? Uh, and i don't even know if this is still a thing i'm not sh- I, I have I find myself more and more having to gauge my references uh for age brackets, so that's always encouraging um, but i'm wondering i don't even know if that's still a thing like is is people talking about each other's moms still happen? I don't know if like young kids today are just so like evolved and awesome that that, that doesn't even happen anymore maybe that's the case but um, when uh when I was young, back in ancient times, and I'm thinking the 1990s, uh, this was something that we dealt with, right? Um, you know, you can talk trash about me, but don't have my mama's name in your mouth. Like that's, that's just how it was, right? So don't do that. Uh, I actually I remember one time in middle school. There was this guy named Greg, and uh, he said something about my mom, and I don't even remember at this point what he said but he said it right in the middle of class in front of everybody and so that kind of added to the level of it needing an answer right and so i remember i remember looking him dead in the eye and then i pointed past him through the window of the room and i was like you see that field over there i said i'm going to see you there after school and i was like uh, you might want to bring a friend to pick up your teeth cuz i'm going to knock them all out of your mouth right there in the middle of the class we're having this conversation and uh, why did I tell you that? Because this is not how we respond to people asking questions, even if because of their pain or lack of understanding, they're talking bad about the God that you love, or they're seeming to degrade or try to undercut uh, the authority of his word. Uh, we, we can't respond like that. That was sinful. And I was also in seventh grade. So, you know, for those of you that are gasping at, at that uh, violent response, you know, I've grown a little bit. By God's grace. so uh, We have to remember that 1 Corinthians says that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They literally can't see the beauty and the harmony of the Scriptures because until the Holy Spirit gives you eyes to see and ears to hear, it doesn't make any sense. They, they, can't, they can't understand. And so... Um, I'm going to share a recent dad fail with you to explain what I mean. So uh, for those of you that don't know, my daughter Lucy is seven and my son Max is four and uh, they're the coolest kids ever but they do some goofy stuff. So sometimes. Uh, and so the other day, I walked into Max's room and uh, his shirt was pulled up to his chest or you know, up to his neck like this, fully up and uh, he's sitting on the bed and Lucy's in front of him and I see a marker in her hand. And so... Her back is kind of covering where I can't see Max. I can tell what's going on, but I can't totally see him. So I, I walk up expecting to see like a bunch of amateur tattoos on Max's belly and chest. Uh, but to my surprise, there's nothing there. I walked up, nothing there. And so I'm thinking, cool, right? Like I caught them before they made this terrible choice. This is a complete dad win. I'm starting to congratulate myself. But still, I'm, you know, I want to like try to address the situation. So I'm like, hey, you know, what, what do you guys think you're doing? What, what's the situation here? What, what's, what's about to happen? And and so Lucy goes on to explain. She's like, "Look, dad, check this out. We have this really cool marker, and this marker is invisible until you put this light on it." And I'm like, "Okay, great. Turn the light on." So she shines this light, I think it's just like a little black light that came with these markers on his skin. And sure enough, he, his whole chest and stomach is covered with what looks like a cross between like Egyptian hieroglyphs and and that graffiti you see on the highway, just all over the place. Kind of it's yeah. And so <laughs> I'm like, all right, great. Uh, and here's the worst part about it. Here's where the real dad fail came in. Um, I, I didn't even stop him. I was just thinking, you know what? Paper's better than this, but you're entertained. And I've got a couple things I need to do, so I just walked out of the room. I didn't even, <laughs> I didn't even go any farther. So, um, what? <laughs> why did I share that embarrassing story with you? It, it's it's because. Until she shined that light on his belly, I couldn't even see what was there. And until the Holy Spirit shines the beautiful light of the gospel into someone's heart, the Bible is the same way for them. They can't see. They don't understand. And so we have to, we have, to have compassion and love for those that, that even if they set themselves up as your enemy, the Bible talks about that in a lot of different ways. Um, we don't have any enemy other than Satan and the forces of darkness. We don't battle against flesh and blood. Uh, And so anybody, no matter how uh, hostile they seem towards us or towards the God that we love, no matter how nasty uh, their question comes across, we have to lead with compassion and love and seek to understand where they're coming from. Uh, Remember the pain, if we can, of what it was like to be blind ourselves uh, and unable to understand the beauty of what these scriptures are saying. Um, We need God's help to do that. We need the help of his Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter zeros in in verse 22 of what we just read, uh, and he encourages us to fervently love the brethren as an overflow of the fact that God has loved and saved us. But we know that this command to love, it stretches far beyond just those that are of the household or the family of God. We are called to love our neighbor as well, right? And we would like to maybe limit that, but then Jesus blows the top off that, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, and basically defines our neighbor as anybody that we're going to encounter that needs our love. And so these, these folks that may be coming with these questions, they would, they would meet that uh, requirement. And so we've we got to love them. we got to care for them and desire God's best for them. Uh, if someone is asking questions about um, God or the Bible, whether they are seeking truth or they are seeking to tear it down, we should love them and care for their souls. And there's no excuse for us to be angry or defensive with them. Uh, The people of God should be the safest group in the whole world to ask questions. And I think sometimes we're not. We need to own that, be honest about it, and do better. We should welcome and encourage people to ask. And we should pray, study, think, and seek to humbly and lovingly answer what we can. Uh, those thoughts as a whole hopefully answer to at least some degree how we approach difficult Bible questions. Um, So by way of example, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a few together that came in um, that were submitted. And and my hope here is that by not avoiding these difficulties, as is often done, but engaging with them, uh, your faith and confidence in the Scriptures will be strengthened And the next time you encounter something hard to understand, you'll be able to seek for answers with a bold and faith-filled confidence. That's why I want to do this with you. Okay? Uh, I also want to be clear, though, before we do this. There are things we may find as we study the Scriptures and even as we engage with skeptics that we are not able to totally answer. I would remind you, right, of the verses in Isaiah God says very clearly, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Mine are higher, far higher. At the same distance the heavens are above the earth, that's how much higher my viewpoint is uh, in comparison to yours. And so we got to keep that in mind. So I would remind you of those verses, but not as a cop-out, not as self-imposed ignorance, but as a humble admission that there." may be things about the supreme and infinite God of the universe who created everything out of nothing that is at least a little bit above our pay grade. I think we should humbly admit that. We should understand that. So what this means practically is, I don't know might be the right answer sometimes. And some of you don't like that. I, I'm not thrilled about it, personally, <laughs> right? But that might be the right answer sometimes. But, but I believe only should I don't know be the right answer, is only after we have prayed and studied, thought, and sought for an explanation. I think sometimes people are unwilling to humbly acknowledge that our intellect, uh, the ability for us to cognitively grip something, that, that it's God, things about God, things maybe God does or God says, are going to sometimes be outside of what we can grasp a hold of. But on, I think on the other end, Some people struggle to admit that, but on the other end, some people are too quick to just say, oh, well, God, you know, uh, Lord works in mysterious ways, because they think that's a verse, and it's not, right? So (laughs) they're just, they're real quick to just, well, I don't know, it's not a big deal, I'm not sure, and you got to find the balance of those two. Uh, There's there's more thinking and praying that can be done oftentimes, and, and sometimes doing that is an act of love for somebody. Uh, that maybe is struggling with doubt. There are so many people, guys, and it breaks my heart that have stayed away from Jesus over seeming or apparent contradictions in the scriptures that a little bit of prayer, a little bit of study, a little bit of humble seeking could have found something that would have shown them actually that's, that's not necessarily a contradiction. That's not necessarily an error um, in these words that God has given us. So um, I, I'm hoping that we have a love-motivated compassion that drives us to study. Um, I'm hoping that we're not On one end, people that study because we like being smart and having answers to questions. And I'm hoping on the other end, we're not just slothful and apathetic towards studying God's word, right? We've got to find that gospel center driven um, and, and motivated by love for God and for people. Amen? Amen. So now we're going to work through some of those specifics I talked to you about, okay? So the first question was this. Why did Jesus tell Mary not to touch him after he rose from the grave, but later invited Thomas to touch his wounds. So why did Jesus say to Mary, don't touch me? And then not too far after that, said to Thomas, come here, put your hand in these wounds and into my side. Okay? This is a really good question. And it's something that that made my pastor heart swell a bit because um, you have to be paying pretty close attention, I think, to pick up on this detail. And whenever I see that saints are digging into God's word with that kind of attention to detail... It blesses me. So I was thankful that this question came. Uh, and this was somebody that was just, they were reading their Bible and paying attention. And they were like, hey, what the heck? So uh, that was good. So uh, both of these accounts, uh, Jesus telling Mary not to touch him and inviting Thomas to touch him, are both in John 20. So this all happens in one chapter, okay? Uh, so what is this not? This is not Jesus favoring Thomas over Mary. Uh, this is not sexism on Jesus's part. Um, there was a, I don't know if it was a great sermon, but it was a thorough sermon on the Bible and gender a couple weeks ago that, uh, I think we called it the Bible and culture. Go check that out if you have more questions about that. This is not Jesus being, being a bro and saying, you know, Mary, don't touch me, but Thomas, you're cool. Um, it's not the result even of John messing up in his reporting of these events, uh, and it, it's not a contradiction. So what's the deal? Why does Jesus say, Mary can't, but Thomas can? Uh, all within a pretty close time frame. So, first of all, uh, the, the King James Version uh, in John 2017 renders Jesus' statement to Mary as, touch me not. Okay? And this is a lot of, I even remember a lot of verses in King James. Like, I've, it's not even necessarily the Bible I've used for most of my Christian life. But for some reason, certain verses just, I've heard them in King James and it just sticks in my mind that way. Uh, and so I think that, that's part of the deal. A lot of people remember this story in the, in the language that King James uses. Uh, but this is not the best way to translate the Greek here, uh, the, the, this touch-me-not that, that is in the KJV. Some modern translations, like the NASB, uh, the Bible Jesus prefers, and also the ESV. I'm just kidding. I'm not really a Bible snob. I promise. like to joke and rib my friends that disagree with me about it. Um, so the NASB and the ESV, they translate it better. Uh, And and what they say is, and if you have an NASB or a uh, ESV and you go look at John 20, what we're talking about, Jesus doesn't say, touch me not. He says, stop clinging to me. Don't cling to me. Okay? Uh, And so... What do we see there? Why does that matter? Well, it's likely that Mary's response was a mix of emotions, right? She was there in the garden weeping over the fact that Jesus was dead. Uh, She, like many of the other disciples, had given her whole life to this idea that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who had come, the the promised one, and uh, she had watched him be murdered on a cross, and there was confusion, and she was broken. And struggling. And so uh, there was a big mix of, of a lot of emotions, probably just joy, first of all, at seeing uh, her Savior risen from the dead. That's probably pro- part of what prompted her uh, to cling to him. But also, like a child not wanting a parent to leave the house, she was clinging to him, not wanting to lose him again. She was, we're talking about the, like a bear hug around the master. She had a hold on him. And, and that's that's what this looked like. And so It is possible, the text doesn't tell us this, but we know that Jesus had taught in John 14 uh, that he was going to return and come again. At that point, the kingdom would be established and everything everyone was waiting for was going to go down. And it's likely, if you're in Mary's position, just think about it. Uh, You saw all that you saw. Jesus dies. He's now risen from the grave. You could easily mistake his resurrection for his return. And she very well may have thought that this was the fulfillment of Jesus promising to return in John 14. And so... If that's the case, it's very likely she, she had a hold of him in such a way she was not going to let him out of her sight, right? If this, is, if this is the time, then I'm sticking with you. And uh, <clears throat> that idea, that thought is bolstered by uh, Jesus' response. If you go and read it, he says to her, Mary, stop clinging to me. He says, I must ascend to the Father. I need to ascend to the Father. And then uh, he sends her on a mission to go tell the other disciples that she has seen him. And so uh, by Jesus' response, we, we don't get all the details of what's going on in Mary's heart and her head. But to some degree, <clears throat> Jesus must have understood that she didn't understand exactly what was going on right then. And she, she had a hold of the master and was not letting him go. And part of what he's doing is, is trying to say to her, uh, this may not be the part of the plan that you think it is. And you're going to have to let me go in order for God's will to continue to be done. And uh, so, so there's really like a loving kind of pastoral teacher moment in that. It's, he's not being harsh, as some people have understood it. He's addressing uh, where she's at emotionally and what she's thinking. So now that's that. Now we got Thomas, on the other hand, he was in doubt, right? He had gone so far as to say he wouldn't believe until he touched the wounds of the master. And so Jesus' invitation to him is a merciful and grace-filled one showing the attitude that God has and that we should have with those who are struggling with doubts. That is probably the most convicting verse to me when I think about sometimes how I've treated those with doubts and questions uh, earlier on as a Christian. Uh, there there wasn't an anger there. There was a gracious invitation. Okay, if what you need to believe is that, then come here, put your hand in my side. That's, that's a picture of mercy. I, I, I don't know how more vibrant you could get than that. And, and if that's Jesus' attitude about it, if he's not threatened by Thomas's doubt, if he's not angry about Thomas's doubt, if he's loving and compassionate and caring towards Thomas's doubt, then if we're following in Jesus' steps, then how should we be towards those who are struggling with doubt? Loving, caring, compassionate, patient. right? This is harder for some of us than other of us, uh, but God will help all of us. Jesus encouraged Mary to have faith enough to let him go and trust God's plan. He encouraged Thomas to have faith, even if it seemed impossible. And so these two different pictures, uh, Jesus is he's, he's encouraging both towards faith. But the cool thing is we see again that Christ is able to meet each of them where they're at. And so this wasn't unfairness. This isn't a contradiction. Uh, this isn't John messing up the record. Uh, this is Jesus the master Loving two people uh, right where they're at and helping them, encouraging them towards faith. Amen? Amen. All right, the second question. If God created the sun on the fourth day, how was there light and day and night on the days before that? Right? So if you go to Genesis 1, uh, verse 5, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Okay, that's, that's verse 5. The sun, it seems, was not created until the fourth day. It says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. Okay, so here's the conundrum we have. And this is one of those things, guys, I promise you, listen to me very carefully. There are people that have stayed away from this God whom we know and love because of stuff like this right here. Because people have said, well, look at this, con- this is foolish. Look at this contradiction. First of all, it says there's light and day and night on, on day one, and then it's not till day four that the sun of the... This, look, this is archaic, and stu- you've got to be stupid to believe this. This is the kind of mentality people have. And this is where they'll come and try to tear down those who have faith and treat them as if uh, you've got to be stupid or not even under- able to understand what you're reading to believe this. Um, so I'm saying that to you because I'm hoping that you care. This may seem kind of, kind of academic, but I'm trying to wrap it so... I'm wrapping it in a, in a compassion tortilla, man. Just so that it's all together. So will you eat this burrito with me? That's the question. I'm inviting you to a Mexican feast in the Word of God. This is important, man. These are the kind of things... And, and, and even in the way we work through this, what I'm hoping is the Spirit of God is, is showing you and teaching you uh, maybe you won't remember the specifics of what I'm about to say about this, but you'll remember how it is we go and approach things like this. How do, what is the process for thinking through it? Uh, because the reality is, if you approach something in the Scriptures that seems not to make sense, the humble, uh, and, and, and I believe the right response, is to assume I don't get it, not that I've found the one thing that God forgot about or messed up on or whatever it is. Um, And the way we view the Word of God, that's why we started this the way we started it. Uh, Dealing with difficulties has for us as believers has to flow out of overall what we believe about, how much affection we have for, what trust we have in the Word of God. Amen? It is trustworthy. It's proven itself. Uh, That's part of what Peter's saying. All flesh is like grass, and it's glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. See, there's got to be a humble admission of understanding, man. This, this thing's been a, around a long time. There's been a whole lot of people interested in trying to undo what it teaches and what it says. There's been a whole lot of people that have not liked the idea that this Bible teaches that you are not the sovereign of your own life, but that you have a responsibility to submit to the one who created you, that he has laws and expectations and that he, that, that, that he really owns you. There's a lot of people that haven't liked that. And so the way... To try to escape that is to undermine this word, and so people will go to Genesis and they'll look at this account and they'll say, "Well, the Bible's saying there's light day one. Well, where does light come from? The sun. Well, then the Bible says that there's uh, that, that clearly says that the sun and the moon isn't uh, isn't lit up here until day four. We have a contradiction. We have an issue. So this is a good question." Um, it's one that's really been often asked and pondered. This, this isn't We aren't the first people to notice this. Um, and, and there are at least a dozen explanations that I've seen. Uh, I'm going to give you two that seem most plausible to me. And so take that for what it's worth. There's more out there if you want to go do some more research. Um, the text, I will say this, the text does not give us enough for a definitive answer. However... Reasonable possibilities should be sufficient for a reasonable person. In my view, I don't think that's—I don't think that's a—I thats uh, uh, do not think that's a statement that is a dig at anything. But reasonable possibilities should be sufficient for a reasonable person. There, I've heard people say, and you know, I, I, the Bible can't be proven. Uh, what the Bible says can't be proven, and so I won't believe it. But dear friend. There are so many things we take for granted on, on, on an everyday basis that you can't prove empirically. There just is, all kinds of stuff, right? I mean, we, we, can, we can observe, yes, that, that gravity exists. You know, Newton's apple, and I can throw something at you right now, and it'll hit you because, you know, there's gravity. But, the, 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 like, to prove that empirically by, by those standards is almost impossible to do. And, and nobody's ever going to prove or disprove the existence of God, the reliability of the Scriptures. The question is, is not its, it's not uh, empirical provability. It comes down to what is reasonable, what is plausible based on all that we have to observe and see. And So uh, I think gravity is reasonable. <laughs> I think God having breathed these Scriptures into life is also reasonable. But we can't get a definitive answer um, but this, this, the, here's some ideas, here's some things to think about, possibilities, reasons why definitely somebody shouldn't stay away from the Lord Jesus because of what Genesis says about light and the sun, okay? So uh, the first answer that, that I've, I've heard given that, that I think makes a lot of sense is that, that God created some alternate light source first before he created the sun and the moon. And I will say this, this idea is appealing to me, well actually both of these both of what I'm going to tell you would, would fall under this rubric. This is part of. This is one thing that sets the Christian faith aside um, and apart from other religions, because almost every other ancient religion uh, worshipped the sun itself, because they understood it provides heat, it provides light, and so and they knew like all life basically depends upon uh, that thing hanging there doing its thing, and so uh, it ended up becoming an object of worship. Here we see the Bible making a very clear distinction uh, that. That even light that is necessary for life was not dependent on the sun wholly, uh, but was at the, the beck and call and command of our God. And so, it, this actually is another way that, that Christianity is, is set aside and apart from other ancient religions. Uh, the sun's not the big show, it's just part of what God made, part of how he did what he's done. Uh, to that, I say amen. I don't know if you understand why that matters, but it does. So, you might be thinking, and I think that's fair. So he makes an alternate light source before the sun and moon. So it seems like double work, right, to create one light source for the first three days and then to create the sun and the moon and kind of let them take over from day four. Uh, First thing I'll say to that is, and and hopefully you'll join me, I have never made a universe from scratch, so perhaps there's a good reason for doing it that way. Yeah? Okay. Okay. None of us have either. So I don't know exactly why maybe God did all he did the way he did it. There may be some very good reason to start with an alternate light source. Uh, There was light. He said it's good, it's there, Uh, but it wasn't the sun uh, until day four. Uh, I've actually seen, you know, so this is, I'm getting out a little bit into maybe why. I don't know why, but I have seen some research on vegetation responding uh, far better to certain wavelengths of light than others. And so during the the first few days, God does call uh, forth vegetation upon the earth. And so maybe that first light source was specific and better for that part of the creative process than the sun and moon would have been. I don't know. Uh, It's possible. You know, basically maybe God turned on a grow light first, right? And then tossed the sun and moon in there once everything got in its place. I don't don't know. I don't know exactly how he did all he did. He's God. Uh, But whether or not that is the case, I will say this. I've worked on projects before where the permanent lights would have been in the way, so we worked off temporary lighting until the permanent lights could be installed. I'm not a genius. I know I'm just a, I know I'm just a blue-collar guy, and so that's the way I think about stuff, but it's, that doesn't seem that big of a deal to me. I've been in lots of projects where if you, if you hung the permanent lights and then you go in and try to paint and do everything else, you're going to tear everything up. So. You put in temporary lighting first, you get to the part of the job where it makes sense to then hang the permanent lights, and then it goes, and off, off you, you know, you're done. So I don't know. Again, I don't understand all the intricacies of uh, creation ex nihilo and, you know, starting from nothing, ending up with a complete uh, and beautiful universe. So those, that's one answer, potentially, that God created an alternate light source first, and then the sun and the moon, when it was the right time, were put in place, Okay? Uh, the second answer possibly to this, it comes from the opposite end of the Bible. So we're looking at Genesis, but if you go to the opposite end of the Bible to Revelation, uh, chapter 22, verse 5, it says this, And there shall be no night there. It's talking about the new Jerusalem. When all this thing wraps up, all the sin is gone, death is fully and completely defeated, darkness has had its day and it's over, and we are in uh, perpetual joy and bliss with our Savior forever, uh, and his face is unveiled. There's no separation between us and him. The Bible says, they shall need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. I can't think about that picture real long without getting misty-eyed, because, man, am I looking forward to that day. I just thought I'd say that. Uh, it is possible that until God created the sun and moon and stars, He simply allowed the radiance of His own glory to light the landscape. Uh, this is going to be the case in our eternal home with Him, and something that causes me great joy to let my imagination wander to. So, uh, we know that God is the very source of of light, and that could have been how He did it. So, uh, hallelujah for that. So those are the two most plausible answers I saw. There are some that get more technical uh, in their analysis of the text. Uh, I found those to be probably less helpful for this setting, but also uh, less satisfying. To me, either one of those is fine. Either one of those are reasonable possibilities, Um, and either one of those to me I realize we're out into conjecture, but I said that when we started. I I can't give you an ironclad answer, but those are just two possibilities that seem very likely from even what we have in the text and what we know about God. So, uh, Definitely not a reason to to doubt the validity uh, or truthfulness of the Scriptures, because it could be a totally different answer we haven't thought of, and maybe we can't, and I don't know. Um, But I'm okay with that. I hope you are too. But at least somebody's thought, Right? At least somebody took some time and thought about it. Well, here's a, few, here's a few ways that could be, and doesn't necessarily mean that the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about or somebody messed up, right? Amen. All right, so the third seeming contradiction and or uh, difficult thing to understand comes from uh, the events surrounding Palm Sunday. Um, have you ever wondered, I did for a long time, and I'm, I alluded to this earlier, how Jesus came into town on the back of a colt. Everybody, I mean, everybody is tearing palm branches off of the trees to run out and wave them and sing Hosanna as he's coming. I mean, this is like the grandest entrance. This makes red carpet walk-ins, you know, look like uh, they don't even matter. It's, this is incredible. Like, everybody's in and, and, and singing and glad that Jesus is here. How do you go from that to one week later? a chant of crucify him. Like that's a big turnaround in a week. Without media, <laughs> right? Without the spinsters driving, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to understand how that could be possible. Well, uh, if you pay attention, if you go look at the synoptic gospels, so that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, every single time, what's often referred to as the triumphal entry, that's what we're talking about on Palm Sunday, Jesus comes in, Uh, it's, it's, it's a party, everybody's singing, everybody's dancing, everybody's happy. Right after the triumphal entry, the very next thing in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, the next event is what? Anybody know? Jesus goes in the temple and starts flipping stuff over. So you got triumphal entry, then Jesus starts messing stuff up. And so you begin to understand pretty quickly how, in that short amount of time, uh, the public opinion changed, right? So, I mean, first of all, Jesus goes in, and he's upset because uh, it, it's it's Passover time. There's supposed to be people, you know, making their sacrifices to God. And so, um, there's there's extra biblical uh, documents that say Caiaphas and his family, the the head priest, they, they they ran that racket. So they were the ones that figured out, okay. Um, you're gonna you, you gotta use Jewish money to to do this this whole thing right. So we're gonna we're gonna set up money exchange. So people are gonna come from all over with different kinds of money. We're gonna switch that out for them so they can do their their offerings on that part the right way. And and so they're ripping people off on that. And then secondly, um, there people are supposed to bring from their own uh, flocks and or you know uh, from their own resources animals to sacrifice. And people are coming from a long way. And so as a matter of convenience, people start just selling the animals right there. So you can do your journey, come pay for the animal. A lot of the animals were blemished. They weren't even fulfilling the requirements given by God to be sacrificed. um, The guys were charging exorbitant amounts of money for these sacrifices, for these animals. And so all of this together really ticks Jesus off. And um, so he goes in there and you know the story. He starts tipping stuff over and he says, uh, you know, this is supposed to be a, house of worship and you've turned into a den of thieves. And so um, I can understand because, y- you, you know, I've, I've understood this and experienced this. If, you, if, if somebody's God is money and you start messing with them about money, they'll bite real fast. And so uh, they had this whole thing set up, man, and every, everybody's making money and it's going good and then Jesus comes in and messes that up. And so that, that made some people... Upset, And that started to kind of stir the pot. So that's a large part of how things turned sideways. Uh, Jesus stood in righteous anger and flipped stuff over, and people didn't like that. So um, that, in the synoptic gospels, so that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, that happens right after Jesus' triumphal entry. Here's where the issue comes in, the potential uh, error as it's sometimes uh, called and or contradiction. John, the book of John... Uh, in chapter 2, puts the event at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So everybody else, it's towards the end of their their gospel. It's towards the end of Jesus' ministry. He's come into Jerusalem for the last time. Uh, It's Passion Week, so that's the week that he's going to die for our sins. John, on the other hand, in chapter 2, has this account of Jesus going in, flipping stuff over, Making a mess and telling everybody to knock it off. So that doesn't jive. You got three gospel writers saying this happened towards the end of Jesus' ministry. You got John saying, giving an account of it happening towards the beginning. Seems like a contradiction. Somebody's wrong. Uh, it seems. Some most people would say, well, you got three books saying this. You got one book saying this. John messed up. Okay. So the question is, did it happen at the beginning or the end of Jesus' ministry? When did Jesus go in? And start wrecking stuff uh, in the temple. Is this an error? If so, who is wrong? Okay, so I'm going to read you two accounts. All right, I'm going to read you the one in Mark. I just picked that of the three. Synoptic Gospels are all pretty similar. And then I'm going to read you John's, okay? And we're going to reason together and see what's going on here. Uh, is, is the timing wrong? What's the best way to understand this? So Mark 11, 15 through 18. This is, this is Mark's account of Jesus driving money changers from the temple. Then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. He began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Alright, that's Mark's account. John, John two, thirteen through twenty-two. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords. That's a whip. He made a whip and drove them all out of the temple. "'with the sheep and the oxen, "'and he poured out the coins of the money changers "'and overturned their tables. "'And to those who were selling the doves, "'he said, take these things away. "'Stop making my father's house a place of business.' "'His disciples remembered that it was written, "'Zeal for your house will consume me.' "'The Jews then said to him, "'What sign do you show us as your authority "'for doing these things?' "'Jesus answered them, "'Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up.' "'The Jews then said, "'It took 46 years to build this temple.' And you'll raise it in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, those are the two accounts. One possible answer that's given and there are, there are smart people that would go with this. And so I'm going to mention it to you, but I don't think it's right. I'm just going to let you know that. It's possible that John just wasn't as concerned about chronology as he put his account together, like the order that things went in. Um, and so he just put it in towards the beginning of his gospel because the flow of his book is markedly different than the synoptic gospels. He covers things that the other gospels don't. He leaves things out that the other gospels don't. And so... Uh, that's sometimes been lauded as well as, why is, John, why is what John says so different? Why does he have um, think, parables and things included in his uh, accounting of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that, that the others don't? Well, that's because God is exceptionally gracious and uh, gave us different viewpoints so that we could see a more circumspect whole view of the life and ministry of our Savior. So I, I have no problem with that. I don't, I don't see how anybody does. Um, so it's possible that just John wasn't that concerned about getting things in the right order. He just was being led by the Spirit on, on what got put in there. Um, that, that is one answer, okay? And that's okay. Maybe. I believe, and, I, and there's a lot of scholars that, that agree, I probably agree with them, would, would be more accurate, more likely we are seeing two different events recorded, okay? Okay? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are recording an event where Jesus came into the temple towards the end of his ministry and messed stuff up. John is recording an event at the beginning of Jesus' ministry where he went in the temple and messed stuff up. Now, for some of you, you don't like that answer because you get squeamish and a little squirmy when any of these events are read because you are uncomfortable with angry, flip stuff over Jesus. And I just want to say, because of whatever's wrong with me, I sincerely hope this is two different events, that there is two different times the master was in such righteous, indignant anger that he rolled up in the temple and messed stuff up. Now, you might not like that, but I do like that because for, for several reasons. One, it also answers something that we heard about several weeks ago where people will try to say, well, look at the Old Testament God. He's angry and cranky and mean and all this type of stuff. And then look at Jesus. He's so nice. He hangs out with kids and he pets lambs. Look at, I mean, what, look at this contrast. How do you line all that up? Well, somebody didn't read something because God is exceptionally merciful in the Old Testament. Over and over and over again, he calls to his people, stop, repent. Please, turn away. I do not in any way take joy in the destruction of my people or anybody in their sin. I love you. Stop. Please. He's very merciful, very long-suffering. And also, Jesus is not just hanging out with kids, healing people, and feeding big crowds with little boys' lunches, man. That's not all he's doing. Sometimes, he's braiding whips and rolling into the temple and hitting people with them. Well, I don't know. Listen, man. That that's what the scriptures say. And, and, and why is that? A, so here's the other problem. You can't make a whip, okay? Because you're not Jesus. You're like, oh yeah, I want to be like Jesus too. Everyone's like, what's the best thing to make a whip out of? No, you don't get to whip anybody because you're not perfect. And you don't, you can't have righteous, indignant, holy, perfect anger because you're, you're a sinner. Okay. Everybody knew that, right? In case you didn't, now you do. You're a sinner, so don't whip anybody. But Jesus could because he was perfect and holy and sinless, and he was real angry about what he was seeing. The people were trying to take, and this is, this is what I'm talking about, man. People, <laughs> these, these, <laughs> these so-called whatever uh, pastors or preachers that are out here fleecing people and stealing money and all this type of stuff, man, they need to read these verses. They need to see how Jesus responded to this because if, if there's not some serious real-deal repentance on that, it's going to go bad for them. Jesus does not play with sin, period. But especially when you try to come in the name of the Father and you start taking advantage of people and using God's name to do it, ooh, buddy. God is not happy with that. Can't do that, man. Why do I think and why do some of the scholars think this is two different events? I'm blowing some of your minds. Jesus, Jesus freaked out twice? I think so. I think that's what explains... The fact that John has it at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and Matthew, Mark, and Luke have it at the end. Okay? A couple of things I'll call to your attention. John is the only one that mentions a whip. Nobody else did, did Jesus take the time uh, to make a whip. So of the two, you know, if I could pick one of those events to be at, I'd probably want to be at event one. Just I think that'd be cool. Um, two, uh, in John's account, the, the Pharisees come and challenge him immediately. Hold on, who do you think you are? That's that's their kind of their attitude. None of the other synoptic gospels say that happened at all. It says Jesus began to teach. He, he was talking to some people. The, 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 the scribes and Pharisees, they were upset about it, but they didn't come at him right away in any of the other gospels. They kind of got off to the side and said, how are we going to get rid of this guy? Because he's causing problems. The gravy train's about to pull out of town if we don't get rid of this guy. So you, you see a difference there. Uh, you see in all of the synoptic gospels, Jesus says, you can't make my father's house a den of thieves. In John's account, if you were listening, it says, you can't, you can't take my father's house and make it a place of business. Okay, so you could chalk that up to John just heard it different or John forgot or whatever. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of differences to these accounts that start to stack up. Um, and when you take all of that together, I believe it's most plausible that the reason John puts it at the beginning and the other three recorded at the end is because John was telling you about the first time Jesus cleansed the temple. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were telling you about the second time. And you might be thinking, well, what, what, what's the deal with that? Well, if, it, if Jesus' ministry was three to roughly four years long, it could very well be that one of the first times he came to Jerusalem, this, that situation happened, and people have short-term memories, or sordid gain is just too tempting, and even though that happened, they just went back to their old ways. And by the time Jesus came for that final time to Jerusalem, it was back to the same deal, and he let them know again, this you know this isn't going to stand. This isn't going to work. So, uh, there are there are some other answers to that. But again, um, what's the big idea? The big idea is there are several possible explanations to how that's the case. Uh, none of them to me seem like well, we better just think of something. It, when I start to really look at the text and pay attention, I see the differences between these two accounts. And I, it, it doesn't make sense to go straight to, okay, well, John got all those details wrong, and he put it in the wrong place just because he didn't know what he was doing or forgot. Uh, it, it's, it's more likely when you've got the other three saying it the way they said it, you've got John saying it the way he said it. Maybe you have two different events. It's easy to assume when you read that that it's the same thing, you know, and, and some of that probably comes out of the fact that we, many of us don't like Jesus getting angry. We, we, that's a hard picture for us, and we're like, Whoa, t- once was tough for me to explain to my friends, twice, right? Um, but really, you know, we, we also need to brush up on our theology of, of, of righteous anger, you know. The Bible does say, that we should be uh, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God desires. That's absolutely a verse and one that every one of you should memorize and we should all live by. Amen. (laughs) The Bible does say that. But the Bible also shows us this idea that if we're going to share in the characteristics of Christ our Savior and of, of the God that made us, there's going to be times where there's also a verse that says, in your anger, do not sin. It doesn't say don't ever get angry. And I'm, I'm very concerned for you if you're never angry about anything. First of all, you've probably, there's probably something there that we need, and I'm being real serious about this, we may need to see some professional help because you've probably subdued a part of your character and nature and personality that is dangerous, and one day that might pop. So if that's you, let's talk, and we'll try to help you and pray you know, through that with you. But on the other side, I'm, I'm super concerned for you if you see some of the darkness and uh, utter disgusting potential of humanity uh, on display in our world today and it doesn't anger you. When little children are abused, when women are abused, when uh, those that can't defend themselves are taken advantage of, uh, the same way that Jesus was very upset right here about the poor being basically run over by people that had the power to do it, and, and, t- and making them even poorer and playing upon their desire to want to come and worship God, using that to try to, to, try to fleece them even more and take more from them. If, if you don't share in that anger, if, if seeing the poor exploited, if seeing those that can't defend themselves being trampled upon, if that doesn't anger you, then I'm concerned for you. That should anger you. The question is, what do we do with that anger? We don't make whips. We go to prayer. We ask God, help. We ask God, Lord, how would you have me help? And we don't go and physically attack the attackers, but we rush to the side of those that have been attacked. And we love them. We pour oil and wine into their wounds. We put them upon our own beast. and We pay for their time at the end. We care for them. We love them. We share the hope of Jesus with them. I hope you are angry sometimes. And I hope you're okay with the fact that our God is angered by the effects of sin. It's out of his love Right? If he was was not a very loving, very good God, he wouldn't care. These things wouldn't bother him, but he is those things. So he gets upset. I'm glad he does. When we think about all of the difficult Bible questions and inquiries that we've talked about tonight and or anywhere else in the Bible... uh, The the verses in 1 Peter that we talked about, I believe, give us a gospel lens um, with which we can approach all difficult Bible questions, both in uh, thinking through them and in answering them. Uh, When when you yourself are, are reading and studying and you approach something that is difficult to understand, whether it be something about the character of God or something that just seems like a contradiction... The gospel gives us a lens to be able to, if we go back to what do we know and believe about Jesus? What do we see in the character of God revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ? The, what, what, what do we know about how incredibly reasonable it is to trust that Jesus did exist, that he was baptized by John the Baptist, that he did die upon a Roman cross, and that he did rise from the grave. If you, if you have that gospel lens and you take that and you place it over whatever those difficulties are, it allows us to go into that with the trust uh, to say, your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And even if I don't get this right this second, there's things I do get and I do understand that are going to allow me to trust you until I either receive an answer from you Lord, about what this looks like, or I don't, and then I just worship you anyways, because you're good. The gospel provides a lens for us to also answer difficult questions uh, for other people. It it allows us not to see them as an enemy, uh, but to see them with the same compassion that Christ has had upon us. Uh, So it allows us to not see their question as a threat because God isn't threatened by their question. Jesus wasn't threatened by Thomas's doubt. Jesus rolled up in the room and said, come here, son, touch me right here. Go ahead, put your hand right there. God's not worried about it. Let's not let ourselves get anxious and scared as if somebody's gonna come along and finally find something that's gonna undo this enduring word. Let me say something to you. All flesh is like grass and it withers away but the word of God endures forever the gospel is the only way we can approach what is hard to understand in the scriptures either ourselves or uh, on behalf of someone else the gospel is the truth that none of us have deserved God's grace but he has been incredibly abundant and in, 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 in unbelievably merciful in seeking after those who rebelled against him in order to reconcile them into redeemed relationship. What we know about God through the gospel allows us to look at the rest of the scriptures and to come away uh, with an accurate and and a a beautiful, really, understanding of the truth that's contained herein. Uh, I'm thankful that we have the gospel. I'm thankful that we have the word of God. And I'm thankful that these things are true. Praise the Lord. May we be a people who trust the truthfulness and authority of God's word. May we be a people who create a welcome and safe environment for both believers and non-believers to ask questions and struggle through doubts. And may we do all of this by the power of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel, to the glory of God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word that is true, that endures. Thank you that it's living and active and it's working in us and on us. Thank you, Lord, that uh, though it's had many detractors, it's had many skeptics, that your word stands. God, help us not to uh, be intimidated by or to feel angry or frustrated with people that don't yet believe this word, God, help us to remember that the word of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, that those that have not yet tasted and seen that you're good, those that have not yet let, yet had the light of your gospel shown in their hearts that they can't see. So God, help us, help us to have compassion and love, help us to not be apathetic, but to pursue, continue to study your word, to show ourselves approved, uh, to care about these things. Lord, we can't memorize a dictionary of every potential contradiction in the word, but God, may we, may we care enough to understand the common ones, to be able to answer people's questions, not so that we look smart, but as an act of love towards them. God, I pray that if there's folks that are a part of Love City that have never had somebody ask questions like this. God, I ask that you would bring people across their path that are seeking for truth, or even people that are angry at God because they're hurt and don't understand. I ask God that you would bring across the path of every person Love City is their home. I ask that you would, you would run them into people that are seeking and searching for answers somewhere. And I ask God that you would prepare them by the power of your spirit, not only to answer accurately, but to answer out of a motivation of love and compassion, out of an overflow of the gospel truth that they have received. God, I ask that you would help us to live lives that would welcome people in. With our words and actions, God, may we create environments everywhere we go where people feel safe to ask us questions, where we know they know we're not going to look down upon them or treat them as an enemy, but that we're going to uh, seek as much as is possible to bring an answer uh, as, as an act of mercy and compassion towards them. God, I I just ask that More than we ever have, that we would have these kind of interactions. God, may we not run from them out of fear of inadequacy. I ask you, God, to give a holy boldness to speak your word boldly to every single person within the sound of my voice. God, I ask that out of love for you and out of passion for your gospel, that people would seek out those who are searching and hurting instead of running from them because they feel like they're not going to know what to say. Lord, you've promised us that in the moment that we need you, the Holy Spirit's going to help us. And even if we have to say, I don't know for a minute, we can go and we can seek out help and we can go to your scriptures and we can find answers to help and bless people. Thank you, God, for the possibility of any of this. It's only by the power of your spirit, by the beauty of your gospel, that we have a chance to participate, to be ambassadors and to participate in the ministry of reconciliation. There's so many that are lost, Lord. There's so many that are searching. May we be the light that you've called us to be. We worship you, dear Master, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.